got a Bible at hand, you can turn to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis 6, verse 1. So we've been in a series looking at the book of Genesis and really going passage by passage, and we're going to try to land this plane going up to the 11th chapter here soon. So soon we're going to start kind of telescoping and looking at a few passages. We won't have time to cover every single passage, um, but we've continued so far every week going at the, with the next one, and I want to do that again today and look at a passage that to us seems very strange, and it seems also very foreboding. And I've warned you, if you've been here the last few weeks, that this is a dark time in the history of humanity, and it's important for us to face that depth, that darkness, and we're going to see here today a story of the flood and the things that uh, come before the flood and how darkness really settles over the earth in much the same way as when it starts out in Genesis chapter 1. There's, uh, the earth is formless and void and there is darkness over the face of the deep and we actually see a reversal back to the beginning of the scriptures in that horrible place of the depth of darkness and nothingness because that is what the Lord has to do in bringing his judgment to the world. And so uh, there are things in these passages that we read that we scratch our head at. We're going to talk about a few of those this morning, but try to stay in the theme of the whole story, which is to see what God is doing. As we've said every week, the main word in the first 11 chapters of the Bible are, is God himself. It is multiple of seven times used throughout the scriptures. This is his story. And so while the details of it certainly make us wonder, and we're going to address some of those things, and maybe the darkness of it even challenges us, it's important to see most of all what he is doing. So let's read this passage starting in verse 1, chapter 6 through verse 19. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came to the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. 
Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring the flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark and keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female." And skipping ahead in chapter 7, the two verses, 17, verse 17, the flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. This is the word of the Lord. So one of the things I always tell people that I love about uh, living in Arizona is that there's no natural disasters. Um, here, that's a plus, right? We don't have the earthquakes of California. We don't have hurricanes. We don't have tornadoes. Uh, if you think that the, uh, the dust storms, the haboobs during summer are a natural disaster, then you probably need to get out a little bit more. Um, but I grew up with a fear of tornadoes. I mean, that was drilled into us as a young kid growing up in Mississippi. Uh, we had tornado drills, and there was always a fear of the tornado coming. In fact, one would come about every 10 years or so and destroy a significant portion of my hometown in Mississippi, a small town. And um, it was one of those years that a tornado had come through and destroyed a portion of my town. It's one of my earliest memories. I was perhaps six or seven years old. And I remember this tornado came and it destroyed a big section of the town. And it also destroyed a lot of the infrastructure around the river that ran outside the town. And there was a series of conveyor belts that brought goods and dropped them off into barges that then would float down this river. And I know that because my dad worked for the chemical company, Mississippi Chemical Corporation, that uh, had some chemicals that were loaded in this regard. And so when those, those conveyor belts got destroyed by a tornado, my dad was called to go and look into it. And for some reason, in the morning that he got the call, he decided to bring me along with him. And so I uh, it was like six o'clock in the morning. It was freezing cold outside. We drove through this town, and I remember looking outside the window and seeing the destruction that the storm had brought. And we got to the edge of the river, and we saw all of the ruins there, and we walked amongst the ruins of these conveyor belts as they talked about what would be done next. And I remember feeling scared, feeling overwhelmed, also feeling extremely cold. And so I whined about the cold so much that my dad eventually got tired of it and gave me the keys to his truck so that I could go and be in the truck and keep warm. And so I went into the truck, turned on the engine, turned on the heat full blast. Apparently, I didn't know uh, how to change where the air comes out because I just thought, that's weird. All the air of the vents is coming out at the floor because that was what it was set on. And so to follow the heat, I got down onto the floor of the truck, balled up uh, into a ball, and, and was under the warmth of the truck, safe and secure. And I remember with all my fear and with all my cold that I was feeling, uh, to be in that warm place, I actually fell asleep. And my dad came back to the truck, and I remember, that's, this is the part that's so clear in my mind, that one of my earliest memories is him being amused and laughing at me as he opened the truck to see that I was asleep, balled up on the floor. But the truth is, I felt really safe there, and I felt warm, and it was a good 
place to shelter from all of the destruction that I had seen and all of the cold that I was feeling. And we know that there's, it's important to have safe places. It's important to have a place where we feel the security of something. Many of us are blessed enough to have a home where that's the case or a place to live. Our home can be a place of shelter where we can be warm and safe if we are so blessed. For some of us, it's a family. To have a family that loves us is a place where we can be safe and secure. Or a friendship or um, a, a task to do. Even those things can be places where we can find a lot of shelter and safety with whatever storms are happening because we know that the world is full of things that are dark and things that are cold and things that challenge us and questions that we wrestle with and violence in parts of the world that maybe we want to tune out and maybe we want to stay in safe places. That's truly a great desire. The Scriptures tell us that the safest place is in God Himself. Psalm 46, a psalm that we sing often here, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in times of trouble. It is actually in Him that we have refuge and shelter from whatever storms are out there. And there are storms, and there are a couple of storms in this passage that I want us to look at. The one is probably pretty obvious to you. It's the theme of the flood, which is the judgment of God. That God blots out humanity and all that, all flesh, says, on the earth. It's the story of God's judgment. It is a hard story. It's a dark story. I'm not exactly sure why it always ends up as the theme of a baby shower. Um, you know, sometimes it does, and even we had, you know, Noah's Ark stuff growing up, but, um, you know, is that the best theme for a baby shower? I'm not sure, right? This is a hard story. It's a storm that God brings, but to understand that storm, you need to see the other storm that's brewing in the passage. And both of these are real, and both of them are extremely difficult but necessary for us to see. The first storm is the storm of evil. The growing darkness that covers the whole earth is like a storm that descends and actually that storm is what brings about the other storm, the storm of God's judgment. So we can picture before us this passage like a weather report and two swirling storms that are moving towards each other. And in the middle of those two storms, there is a shelter. There is a refuge. There is a place of safety. The ark and God's favor and God's rescue. And so here's what I want us to see today. The storm of evil, that's the first storm. And the storm of judgment, that's the second one. Both remind us of the beauty of the shelter we have in God. And if we don't have that shelter, then to find our shelter in God Himself. The storm of evil and the storm of judgment both remind us of the beauty of the shelter we have in God. So let's look at those individually. The storm of evil, the storm of judgment, and then also the shelter of God. First, the storm of evil. Now, this is hard to talk about, but we need to go there. These are things in this passage that are difficult for us to understand and also 
uh, just terrible to think about. These evil acts that are talked about are nonetheless a reality even still today. This storm of evil. What kind of evil are we talking about? This is the kind of things that turn our movies from PG to PG-13 and PG-13 to R. Same things. This is demonic possession, sexuality, and violence. First, demonic possession. That is the first couple of verses here. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, verse 1, Daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any that they chose. Now, question that we have is who are these people and what is the weirdness of this situation? We'll talk about that in just a moment. But who are the sons of God? Where did they come from? Now, we have to dive deep into that because uh, it's not a very easy thing to answer. There have been many different answers given. And there's a kind of a convenient answer that I don't think is very persuasive. And there is a probably more biblical answer to that question, which is also somewhat hard to understand and wrap our heads around. Who are the sons of God? The convenient answer would be to say, if you've been with us, you know that we talked about the story now has two parallel lines running. There is the line of the serpent and the line of the woman. There is the sons of Cain or the way of Cain and all that he brought into the world. And there's the way of Adam or the way of Seth and that line. And so the two lines are there reflecting the theme statement of the Bible, Genesis 3.15 that there will be enmity between the serpent and the woman, and that enmity will exist, and that the serpent will crush the heel of the line of the woman, but the line of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. So there's these two lines, and so tempted to say that what happens here is that the two lines intermix. They intermarry. And that actually the evil that comes from that is The evil affects more of the good than the good affects the evil, and that's what happened. However, while that would make sense to this passage, it doesn't make sense to how the rest of the Scriptures seem to understand these passages. Very strange uh, passages, hard to understand, and yet clearly talking about fallen angels in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 3 and Jude verse 6. I won't read them to us now, but 1 Peter 3 talks about the spirits who are imprisoned and then are set free. And then in Jude chapter 6, he talks about the angels who fall away from authority. And in both of those passages, in 1 Peter and Jude, there is a context of talking about Noah and the flood. There's a talking about this. Add to that the fact that the sons of God, that, that name, sons of God, although it sometimes refers to Israel in the Old Testament, and the faithful, the sons of God, just like we say we're sons and daughters of God. In the Old Testament, more often than not, it refers to angels. And so what we have here, hard as it is for us to receive at the face of it, is that I believe this is fallen angels let loose on the world, what we would call demonic possession. There is also sexuality. And the sexuality, even though the Scriptures Make it clear that sexuality in the context of marriage and by God's design is a beautiful thing. That is none of the language that's used here. This is forceful. They took as wives. Later, sons of God came into the the daughters of man. They bore children to them. This is the language of force. This is the language of dominance. This is the language of 
forcefulness in sexuality. And if you notice in verse 2, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any that they chose. The pattern there is the same pattern that Eve had when she took the fruit, right? She saw that the fruit was good and it was desirable to make one wise and she took it. Same formulation here. They saw that the daughters were beautiful and they took them. This is now the forbidden fruit. It is these women. And what we have here then combined with the fallen angels stuff. This is perhaps the beginning of cult prostitution. Meaning, there are, remember we're staying PG-13 here just for a short moment. There is this idea of being possessed and also engaging in sexuality with the darkness of the world. That sounds fantastical, sounds unbelievable, but wait, there's more. Look at verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, they were born children to them. These were old. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Who are these people? The Nephilim. Your Bible might translate it giants. There were giants in the land. Now, we don't actually know for sure if they were giants, because the but the reason why it was translated that way for some, of, some Bibles is because the word Nephilim only occurs one other time in Scripture in the book of Numbers. When the people of God have been released from Egypt and they go out into the land and they're scouting out, and they send out spies to spy out the land, and the spies see the Nephilim in the land and they say that they are like grasshoppers. Uh, we, we are like grasshoppers compared to them and, th- and they think of us as grasshoppers. And so... The idea that these were bigger people has stuck. Whether we, these are the same Nephilim as the other Nephilim, there's many centuries, millennia between the two, so we don't know actually. But the main thing about the Nephilim is not their size, even though that could be the case. It's that they are violent. It's their violence. They are men of renown, or better translated, men of infamy. They kill. And perhaps they were somehow spiritually charged to do that, somehow maybe bigger than other people, we don't know. Now, just as a side note, when we talk about things that are quote-unquote unbelievable to us in Scripture, when we come to passages and it challenges the way that we normally see the world, we need to make sure that we understand it um, in, in this way, that the things that are fantastical to us are so because of the categories that we have. And so we have to always ask ourselves, if this is unbelievable to me, what are the, what are the categories that I'm using to understand the world? For instance, this is a silly example. If all you've ever seen are apples, then an orange looks unbelievable to you. But if you have a category for round fruit, then suddenly an apple, an orange, a grapefruit... Even a grape all makes sense, even though they're different sizes, they're different colors. There's a category for that thing in your brain. Do we have a category then for the spiritual realm? That's a question we have to ask ourselves. Is something unbelievable to me? We have to ask ourselves, unbelievable with respect to what? What are the things that I respect the boundaries of? And are those things trustworthy? Because everyone believes, for instance, 
whether you're a Christian, not a Christian, trust the Bible, don't trust the Bible, that there were at one point large mammal-slash-reptile-slash-bird-like things called dinosaurs that were bigger than any other animal that we've ever seen. Everyone believes that because there's a fossil record. So with respect to animals, we believe that that thing is possible, but with respect to people and demons, do we have those categories? With respect to the other things in Scripture, do we believe that God created something out of nothing? Do we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? Do we believe that these things are possible? 99.9% of the world believes in the spiritual realm. It's only modern Westerners who have trouble with these things. And so if we believe certain things but don't believe other things, we have to ask ourselves why. And with respect to a God who's created everything from nothing, these things do not appear to me fantastical. They appear to me to be outside of my experience, but also well within the experience of what God has done and continues to do in the world in the spiritual realm. I say that as an aside, but the main point that this passage is making to us is that things are really bad, really bad. In fact, this is how bad they are. Verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every, only, continually. That doesn't leave much room for a ray of hope. Right? This is how bad things are with the sex, with the violence, with the demon possession. Things have reached a point of no return. And so you have to understand the storm of evil is the context for the storm of judgment that God brings. If you're going to understand what God does here, you have to understand what He is addressing. He is bringing this judgment to an evil storm. You know that feeling when you feel a little unsafe. Maybe you're on a certain street, an area of town. Or maybe you're around someone who's bigger than you, stronger than you, more armed than you, whatever it may be. And you have this feeling of vulnerability and it kind of just sits inside of you. That is what society is like when it reaches this level. It's unsafe for the people of God. It is a horrible place to be. And God is grieved, but He brings His judgment to that world. There is the storm of evil, the second storm, though it's hard for us to see and it's necessary for us to understand is the storm of judgment. God judges the sin. And He brings about waters upon the earth to do so. To understand this judgment, we have to see God does this in stages as well. God is not whimsical with His judgment. He doesn't just do it out of spite or because he becomes angry for a moment. There are actually stages to this. The first is correcting. And this addresses one of the questions that we may have about judgment passages in Scripture in general. When we think about God judging people, we think sometimes, why does he have to do that? Why not fix things? Why not remedy? Why not correct? Why not just fix the problem rather than destroying we wonder this. Since He is God. The but the answer to that question is, well, there's multiple answers to that. The first would be we don't understand the depth of sin and how, how wrong it is to raise a fist to 
God and how much that judgment is deserved, that's certainly the place that most Christians go to. But the other answer to that question is, He does correct. He does divert. He does remedy. That's what He's been doing this whole time. We've been talking just over six chapters of Genesis, but this is millennia of time. He has been patient. Even still in this passage, He's limiting. Verse 3, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. God limits the amount of time on earth, begins to limit the number of days of men so that He can limit this evil. What does He do with Cain? A murderer, the first murderer. He, he looks at Cain even when Cain is walking away. Why is your face fallen? Why are you angry? If you, do not do, if you do well, will you not be accepted? He brings them along. He Even after Cain commits murder, he puts his mark of grace on him so that other people will not destroy him. He still wants to preserve Cain even though Cain has totally abandoned him. All the way back to Adam and Eve. Flagrantly walking away from him. He covers them. He's patient with them. It is the nature of God to be patient, to fix, to correct, to maintain His creation. He loves what He has made. It is the nature of God to be patient, but it is the nature of sin to reach a fullness. As we've seen, sin compounds. It grows. It crosses a line. And we need to understand this. This is more of a theological thing, a truth that we need to understand as a pattern in Scripture. Ultimately, though God is patient, you cannot correct your way out of sin. Not ultimately. Sin doesn't need correction ultimately. It needs judgment. God begins with correcting though. Then He moves into grieving. How does God feel about sin and about this judgment that is coming? Verse 6 And the Lord regretted that He made man on earth and it grieved Him to His heart. How does God feel? Does He feel vindicated? Does He feel gleeful? Does He feel all-powerful? He feels sad. He's grieved in His heart. And He regrets it. Now don't read into that things that aren't there. God didn't make a mistake. He's not surprised. He didn't lose control of His joy. This is in a manner of speaking. You can be in control. You can have all knowledge and still be sad. He's grieved. So he corrects. He grieves. But then ultimately, he judges. When sin reaches its fullness. Verse 7, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Verse 14, Sorry, verse 13. And the God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So the second storm comes. The storm of evil necessitates the storm of judgment. God can't have His people die off. His line, His preserved seed that He has promised will crush the head of the serpent cannot be destroyed from the earth. And so, the evil cannot be allowed to continue. So the world is plunged into darkness and into the flood, returning us, as I mentioned, 
to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. There is, the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. The deep there is just the ocean, the primeval ocean outside of time. God brings man back to that formless and void place, the original ocean. I don't know if you have seen the Noah movie that came out seven or eight years ago. Um, Russell Crowe, Anthony Hopkins. From a biblical perspective, there's almost nothing commendable about it. Um, however, it is a fairly good movie. As movies go, it got really good reviews, so you judge those things in your own heart. It was, but from a biblical perspective, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't accurate or anything like that, but I did think it, it caught something about the darkness of the time and the darkness of God's judgment. As you see, that there's almost like a filter over the whole movie. It's just dark. You see the evil, the violence, the sexuality that is pre-flood, that feeling of helplessness. It's very powerful. And then when you see the waters come and the judgment and people actually dying, you get the sense of that darkness as well. And so I left that movie with that impression, that deep impact, that yes, though this is dark, and it is very dark, that it's very real, it's true to reality, because there has to be uh, some recognition that there is darkness in this world, there is deep evil. It exists within us, but it also exists outside of us. But there's also the reality, and there has to be this reality of judgment, otherwise Nothing else will make sense. Nothing else will be justified. And so these things have to be true. They have to be real. My heart tells me that as well as the Scriptures. But it's still dark. But Noah, his family, and the seeds of a new creation, the animals, are saved from both storms. They're saved from the life of evil that continues to abound, making it hard to be blameless as they were trying to be. They're saved from the presence of evil in that storm, and they're also saved from the wrath of God. They're sheltered from these storms. So let's talk about the shelter of God. We're told that God brings favor and rescue to Noah. Verse 8, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 14, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark. Cover it inside and out with pitch. Verse 18, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. God preserves Noah and his family and uses them to recreate the world. He puts them in an ark, a shelter, not a boat. There's no steering mechanism on this ark. They're just going to float. It's nothing but a refuge. It's a shelter. It's a place to be outside of the storm. And so in doing so, he sets up the pattern that we're going to see throughout Scripture all the way to Jesus the pattern for Scripture is this. Sin reaches a pinnacle. God judges and God saves. It's going to happen again in Egypt. In fact, there is going to be another ark. The same word, ark, used of the baby Moses is placed in a basket or an ark and put on the Nile. 
and the Nile doesn't touch him. He floats on top of it. And God's going to use Moses to be an ark for Israel. He's going to lead them through the waters of the parted Red Sea. And then he's going to use the waters to judge Egypt. Then he's going to use his people as they come to the promised land. They're going to judge the Canaanites. They're going to be used by God to do so. But God waits a long time. The patience of God is on display. Why? He says over and over again, the evil of the land of Canaan has not reached its fullness. That's why I'm not sending in Israel yet. It hasn't reached that pinnacle yet, but it will. And then when it does, I will bring judgment. And in doing so, He will save and give a promise to His people. This is the pattern. Sin reaches a pinnacle. God judges that sin, but He also provides salvation. What about now? It's the same thing that exists. Are we in this place where the thoughts and every intention of the thoughts of the heart are only evil continually? I don't think so. But I don't know. There is plenty of evil in the world. I recognize that I'm shielded from 90% of it by my situation in life, as most of us are. But there is plenty of evil. And there's plenty of evil within us. Where is the breaking point? I don't know. But it will surely happen again. In fact, it's the very metaphor that Jesus uses for His second coming in Matthew chapter 24. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. This is what Jesus promised us will be what it is like. And so, while we speculate, we are unaware until He comes. Just like in the days of Noah, there will be judgment. But just like in the days of Noah, there is salvation, shelter, refuge as well. And that refuge is found in Jesus Christ. He is the shelter that protects us from both storms. He protects us from the storm of evil. Evil doesn't have its way with us. Many of us don't understand when we read something like Psalm 121 where it says things like this, things that are hard for us to believe. The Lord will keep you. The Lord will protect you from all harm. And we think, what does that mean? All harm? Aren't Christians harmed? Don't we have cancer? Don't we die? Aren't we persecuted? What's going on with that? It doesn't mean that there is nothing that happens to us that is negative. What What he means by that is that we are protected from evil intent. Nothing happens to us that God does not permit, that God does not use for His purposes. We are never in the hands of evil. We are always in His hands, though He permits certain things to happen to us in His mysterious will. That is not the place where we reside. We are kept by Him. There is nothing that evil can do to us. Ultimately, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There is no harm that can come to us by evil intent. We are protected from the storm of evil. We are protected also from the storm of judgment. When we are in Christ, we're made righteous, blameless, and protected. Like Noah was protected 
from the storms. The old song, Grace Greater Than Our Sin, old spiritual song says, Sin and despair like the sea waves cold. Threaten the soul with infinite loss. Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold, points to the refuge, the mighty cross. There is sin and despair. These things are realities. It's hard to talk about on a Sunday morning, but it's true that there is the presence of evil in the world and the evil in us, and there is the reality of judgment. Sin and despair, they're like sea waves. They're cold. They keep battering against us. They threaten our souls with giving up, with despair. But grace is greater and it points us to the refuge that is the cross. There is an ark for us in Jesus Christ. Our safety is found only in Him. So important for us to see as we begin this week, very significant week, as we move towards Good Friday, we're talking about the cross. We're meditating on the cross. We're giving thanks for the cross because the cross is the refuge against whatever may batter us from the outside, whether it be evil or the possibility of judgment, the necessity of it even. No matter how much that storm, whichever storm it is, rises against us, we stay above it. That's I love the image in chapter 7, verse 17 that we read earlier. The flood continued for 40 days on the earth. The water increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. And, or but, the ark floated on the face of the waters. No matter how much the tide rose, no matter how much the storm happened, no matter how much it prevailed on the earth, it didn't prevail against the ark. It stayed above it. And that is exactly what happens to us when we're in Christ. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. No matter how much evil rises up in the world, no matter how much evil grips our own hearts, no matter how much God brings the necessity of judgment to the world, we stay above those waters because of what Christ has done. When something floats, it's impossible to drown it. And that's exactly what God does. He puts us into His refuge. He is a very present help in times of trouble because in Him we are in Christ and therefore carried, sheltered, protected forever. Let's pray. God, we may shy away from these realities, but we know that they're true, that there is something deeply wrong with the world and something deeply wrong with us. And we know that a course correction isn't enough. That we need, rather, something else, death and resurrection. And so we pray as we prepare our hearts this week to remember and experience those things again, that You would make that resurrection happen in our hearts first, that we would realize that we are dead in our transgressions and sins, and that we can be made alive together with Christ, that we can find refuge in the cross. That no matter what beats against us, it's never going to prevail. 
the water will not get inside because you have put us in that shelter and you hold us there. Comfort us and surround us with that love and that assurance this morning, even as we come to your table to be strengthened by you. In Jesus' name, amen. Great 
come to the Lord's table this morning and what requirements do we have for that? How do you come to this table? The answer is simply if you find refuge in the cross alone. If you believe that Jesus Christ, by what He has done, the very things that we are celebrating this week, His death and His resurrection, are the refuge that you have, the only true safe place from whatever storms are out there, if you believe that that is Jesus Christ, then you can come to this table and partake again of what He has done for you. His body has been broken. His blood has been poured out for you so that you can have life in His name, that you can have a safe place to be. This is a safe place. It's found only in His arms embracing us. And so if you've made that profession with your life, you've believed in your heart, you professed with your mouth, that's true. And we want to invite you to this meal today to remember and believe what He has done for you. We're going to have a time of coming up. So we're actually starting this again this week. We're trying it out. So it went pretty well during the first service. We'll see how it goes. We have been walking it to you, but since we've put all the pews out now um, and spaced them out rather than having every other pew, it's harder to reach some of you. So we're going to have you come up to the front like we used to do. Um, And so if you want to and are so led this morning, you can come uh, up and we'll have two stations, one on each side, and you can uh, take turns coming and go back down the side uh, aisles to your seat. If you would prefer for any reason to uh, stay seated this morning, then we, uh, that's totally fine as well. And the uh, elements themselves have um, two layers on them. So there's a, a pre-sealed container with two different tabs that you can take off. As you receive these and go back to your seats, go ahead and uh, loosen those up and get ready and hold them. And then at the end of the song, we will eat and drink together. But I remind us what Paul said about Christ on the night that he was betrayed. He took bread and he broke it. He gave it to his disciples and he said, take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood given for the remission of sins. Drink from it, all of you. As often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. I invite you to come and eat and drink and remember and believe. We're going to go by rows here. So just as you visually see it, give, give space to those who are around you. We're still trying to respect that. So as we move back this way, just watch visually when you can come up and receive these elements from us this morning. for you. 
body and blood of Christ for you. Body and blood of Christ for you. Body and blood of Christ for you. Body and blood of Christ for you. body of Christ broken for you. Eat, remember, and believe. Blood of Christ shed for the remission of sins. Drink from it, all of you. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you today for inviting us to gather with you to meet with you at your table to hear from you, from your word, to receive all of this goodness, Lord, and today we give you a special thanks for the sacrament of your supper. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who you gave to us freely, who died upon the cross, who bled from the nails, and who was broken, and yet who has risen again, conquering our sin and the devil and death itself, and we praise you, Jesus, today. You are the risen Lord. You are the one who has saved us. We are your people. Thank you. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Would you stand as we continue in worship this morning, confessing our faith together? You'll find your bulletin on the screen, the words from the Apostles' Creed. We'll recite this together today as our confession of faith to Christians throughout the world and throughout the ages. So I ask you, Christians, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. 
He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. There's no deed that can redeem us. There's no right nor magic word. Only by the work of Jesus can salvation be secured. It is finished, He has done it. We heart rejoice. Our is accomplished. Raise a shout with ragged voice and go bravely into battle. He has won the war. It is finished. Lift your head and weep no more. There's no sacrifice to offer. There's no penance to Freely drink of living water. <coughs> it is finished, He has done it. Let your weary heart rejoice. is accomplished. Raise a shout with a ragged voice and go bravely. Every sinner rejoice, King Victor's cry. Raise up your voice, sing it out through earth and sky. It is finished, he has done it. He heart rejoice. Redemption is accomplished. Raise a shout with a ragged voice and go bravely into battle, knowing he has won the war. It is finished. Lift your head and weep no more. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. It's Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. What a good joy to be with you today. Hope you have a great week this week. Do take this with you. This invitation to uh, the events later this week. If you're visiting with us, this is an invitation.